Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When the future 10th Earl of Weems attended his interview for admission to Christchurch College, Oxford in 1837, he was asked just one question. How's your father? The American elite likes to think it does things differently. Instead of family pedigrees, marriage announcements in the New York Times list universities attended and degrees earned. These academic badges of honour are held up as proof of the idea that anyone can make it so long as they have the right qualities. Ronald Reagan said that all Americans have the right to go just as far as their dreams and individual hard work will take them. This formula has been echoed by every president since, including Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. But though the rhetoric of the American dream has stayed the same, the odds of realising it have not. Biden and Trump were both born in the 1940s. The median child of that generation had a 93% chance of earning more than their parents had. By the time Obama was born, a boomer of the 1960s, that probability had already shrunk to 60%. But a child born in the full optimism of the Reagan years, the 1980s, would have less than a 50-50 shot at that goal. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideaux, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America a meritocracy? The belief that people should advance according to their talents, rather than birth or connections, is one of history's most revolutionary ideas. But the ideal that has inspired Americans since Thomas Jefferson has lost its luster. Social mobility has stalled, belief in the American dream has faltered, and populists on the right and the left see a country captured by self-serving elites. Can America's meritocracy be mended? With me to unpack all of this are John Fasman, our US digital editor, and our latest guest star, while Charlotte is away, is Tamara Jilks-Bohr, our US policy correspondent. Tamara, I was going to say welcome to the show, but you've been a guest on Checks and Balance a bunch of times before, so welcome to the panel, perhaps is better. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to uh, talk about this subject today. Good. What's going on in, in DC? You've just relocated, so you're fairly new in the city. I am fairly new, and I am currently sitting in a room full of boxes. Well, I'm sure you'll get around to unpacking them one day. John, how are you doing? What's up in New York? I am very well. I'm taking my son to get his second vaccine shot tomorrow. Uh, On the subject of boxes, when we packed up my wife's parents' house this past year, I'm I'm pretty sure we opened some boxes that had not been opened since the mid-70s. So you've got some time. (laughs) That sounds great. That's actually worse than my experience. I lived in San Francisco and I lived there for a year. And then um, when we moved to DC, we had some boxes that we just simply sealed up because they had been still packed up from uh, 
<laughs> from when we moved originally. So, yep, definitely hoping that doesn't happen this time around. <laughs> I think there are always boxes in a move that stay boxes. You'll open them one day and just be amazed by what was in there. <laughs> okay, let's get into this episode. This one's going to be slightly different because we're going to start way back in the 18th century and talk about the genesis of one of the country's founding myths with Adrian Wooldridge. Adrian was the economist's Lexington columnist during the Bush years, and also the early part of Barack Obama's presidency. He's now crossed the Atlantic again, complete with lots of unpacked boxes, no doubt, and writes the Badgett column on British politics. He's one of my favourite colleagues, and so you're going to be hearing a lot from him in this episode, because he's just written a book called The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. The word meritocracy was only coined in the 1950s by a British sociologist, Michael Young. And to start us off, I asked Adrian to explain what exactly is meritocracy? Meritocracy is a relatively new word for a very old thing. The idea of meritocracy is essentially that people should be judged according to their individual abilities and individual promise. But the meaning of meritocracy, the meaning of merit, the meaning of talent, the meaning of ability is something that does change significantly over time. Should we start with the 18th century definition? What did the founders think they were up to vis-a-vis -vis meritocracy, even if they didn't use that word? They don't use the term meritocracy. But they do use the term an aristocracy of talent, and they tend to distinguish between a real aristocracy, which puts people of virtue and talent at the top of society, and what they call a tinsel aristocracy, and that is the aristocracy of the landed elite. And what they're basically arguing in the American Revolution, I think, is not that we should create a society based on equality. They want to create a society in which real talent can come to the fore. And in the 19th century, you have a big extension of the franchise in America. How does the definition of talent or virtue change in the 19th century? How different is it from that 18th century definition? In the 19th century, you have a much more, I think, democratic notion of what talent means. You get the rise of a, a collection of fantastically successful industrialists who not unnaturally think that they embody talent and they will say they will say that the proof of talent is not your ability to write Jeffersonian prose, but your ability to run steel mills and things like that. And one of the things that really distinguishes America this, in this period is the notion that there are many winning trump cards. In Britain, you tend to have one trump card, which is you rise up through society on the basis of intellectual ability. You become a senior civil servant or a senior don. In America, many, many other versions of talent, money-making, the capacity to build bridges or you know, to transform the world, many trump cards rather than just one trump card. And then in the 20th century, you get the development of widespread intelligence testing, the SATs and IQ testing, which is now extremely controversial, and we'll come back to why. But initially, it seemed to offer huge promise, right, to give everyone a fair shot. Fast forward to now, and most of the writing about meritocracy is focused on its failures. So when did it all go so wrong? Yeah, what happens in 1945 and the Second World War in particular is what might be called a sort of a meritocratic moment. The idea that you are providing equality of opportunity for all sorts of citizens, that America's great sins of prejudice, you know, anti-Semitism and anti-black prejudice are, are slowly uh, being moved to one side, are declining. 
and the idea that you have a technology in the form of SATs that can identify merits. And we do see an enormous opening up of American society, not least through the GI Bill, which brings millions upon millions of people who've served during the Second World War into you know, free educations at Harvard and elsewhere. And a sense of real, that the promise of American life is being realised at that time and a booming economy. Fast forward to, to, to the late 20th century, you have growing doubts about whether this has been realised. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. The most important of them all, I think, is that merit is contaminated by money. The rich and successful are buying meritocratic success. Yes, it's interesting. These two concepts that we thought were antithetical actually go together and you get a sort of hereditary meritocracy exactly in america where harvard graduates marry each other and their children then go to ivy league schools yeah you have this combination of money and merit sort of intermarrying you also have assortative mating the children of educated people marry the other children of educated people which has a massive impact on the tenor of society people think of a society distorted by the rise of billionaires But if you look at patterns of inequality as you experience them in daily life, it's much more the fact that educated people marry other educated people. And that acts as a massive multiplier. Inheritance has gone from something that meritocracy was supposed to destroy to something that in many people's mind is something that is reinforcing. Tamara, let's begin where Adrian left off there with where we are now, this critique that it's become really quite easy for the wealthy and the highly educated in America to pass on their privilege to their children through the means of what is ostensibly a meritocratic education system that's meant to really be a leveller. So I think one of the main ways we can see how easily meritocracy can be inherited is in the tradition of legacy admissions. So many of the elite colleges honor whether or not your parents, one or both, are alumni. Of course, on top of that, if your parents happen to be wealthy alumni and can donate a building or help a program through their connections, for example, we also know that that can influence whether or not you get admitted to university. What is interesting is that we are seeing some pushback against this that's happening in real policy changes. Colorado has a policy now where their public universities cannot use legacy to admit their students to their public universities. This is surprisingly the first time we've seen this meritocracy of inheritance get really reevaluated in a substantial way. Yes, I do find legacy preferences at elite American universities so baffling. And I think this is one of those things for Americans where you don't really notice the wallpaper in in the room where you live if you've been there for a while. And it takes somebody else coming in and walking into that room and saying, gosh, this wallpaper is rather surprising to make you think about it twice. But it's a mad idea. I don't know of other Western countries that do legacy preferences for universities. Certainly in the UK, which we tend to think of as a more class-bound society than the US, they don't exist. And frankly, I think it's something that would kind of count against you if you tried to point it out. And I remember when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed to the Supreme Court, mentioning in passing in an article that he benefited from a legacy preference when he applied to Yale and getting a cross letter, I suspect, from a Yale alum pointing out that this was a very uncharitable thing to mention, as if it's sort of rather unsporting. 
Anyway, John, one of the things that is very striking about America is that even if the American dream is less attainable than it once was, as I mentioned in the introduction, belief in the American dream is still fairly widespread. Why do you think that is? Well, belief in the American dream is widespread, but that's indexed to age. So you have 2020 YouGov poll of 14,000 American adults, which showed that around three-fifths of baby boomers believe in the American dream but just over half of all adults believe in it, with millennials as the least likely generation. I think what that speaks to is a certain social calcification. And I think this is something that the founders wrestled with, certainly Adams and Jefferson wrestled with, the idea that, okay, we're not going to have an aristocracy based on titles or land or what your parents did. We'll have it based on talent. But then how do you prevent that from calcifying, right? What happens when well-educated people marry each other, devote an enormous amount of their money and time to advancing the fortunes of their children, and then those children go on to marry other children exactly like them? That seems a lot like a calcified aristocracy, only using different criteria for membership. So I suspect that's one reason why belief in the American dream belief in limitless mobility is, is starting to fade just because it is it really does seem less attainable to a lot of people. So while millennials are less inclined to believe in the American dream in comparison to boomers, we also know that African Americans are less inclined to believe in the American dream compared to white Americans. Adrian mentioned that the GI Bill was one of the methods by which we were able to see people rise to the top based on their intelligence um, and based on what they did for the country. But a study by two economists, Sarah Turner and John Bound, they found that the GI Bill actually exacerbated rather than narrowed the economic and educational differences between blacks and whites among men in the South. And the reason for that is that while all soldiers were given the opportunities to an education, for example, segregation of educational institutions prevented African-American soldiers from really seeing that through. And I think it's really important to emphasize the connection between education and wealth. According to a study from the St. Louis Fed, a family with at least one parent with a bachelor's degree has almost five times as much wealth as a family without a bachelor's degree. Yeah, the contrast is really striking. And it's also worth pointing out that the link between family income and SAT scores is much tighter now than it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Thanks both. We'll explore what happened in that post-war period when a true American meritocracy seemed within reach and what went wrong with it in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. This week, there's a deep dive special report into what's gone wrong in Brazil under the disastrous presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. Our business pages include a tutorial on how to be the next Tesla, in case any listeners fancy taking on Elon Musk. And there's an extraordinary obituary of the last known survivor of the international brigades that fought General Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. For a fleeting mid-century moment, just after the Second World War, it seemed that America had cracked the problem of fairness, that the formula for achieving the American dream had been found, for white folks at least. I asked Adrian to take us into that period of history and explain how that moment was born and whose grand vision it was. 
Two of the most interesting advocates of meritocracy, I think, are Lewis Terman, who is professor of psychology at Stanford, and James Conant, who becomes president of Harvard University. Terman is one of the inventors of the American version of the IQ tests, and he is obsessed by genius. He argues that the most important productive unit in a modern knowledge-based economy is high IQ individuals, geniuses. What he does is write to all of the teachers in California, get them to nominate their best pupils. He then tests those pupils and he writes this extraordinary study of these geniuses. One of these geniuses that he identifies rather unprofessionally, I think, is his own son, Frederick. Well, I was always interested in science and uh, uh, electrical engineering, electrical things, way back when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, and Frederick helped to turn Stanford into what it is today, which is an engine of the modern high-tech economy. Well, uh, somewhat of an exaggeration, because this wasn't built up by any one person or even one or two or three people. And they really are responsible, I think, in many ways, as much as anybody, for Silicon Valley. In fact, Frederick Terman is known as the father of Silicon Valley. And the company's made a major contribution to the development of those parts of the university that contributed to these companies. So we all grew up together, really, and uh, turned out very well. They looked for geniuses right across the country with IQ tests. They wanted to bring them to Stanford. And when they're there, they want them to be studying not old-style subjects like the classics. They want them to be studying things like engineering and developing new technologies. A totally new class of computing machine has recently come into being. It's called an adaptive computer. And it is important because it can learn from its own experience. Lewis Terman is a very complicated figure. He was a, an enthusiastic eugenicist, as many people at the time were. But he's also somebody who says we must go through the whole of society and find clever people. These hidden Einsteins are the key to the productive power of modern America. The other person, James Conant, is an extraordinarily interesting figure, a chemist by training. Uh, and he takes Harvard, which at the time when he becomes president is, very, is a very sort of quasi-aristocratic institution, very exclusive. To appreciate fully Harvard's age and historical significance, one should enter the yard by Johnson Gate. Getting the old wasp elites to come there and spend a lot of their time socialising and marrying each other, uh, you know, looking for debutantes and that sort of thing. And he says, no, what we want is a new type of Harvard man who is defined by their intellectual ability, by their hard work. And he uses, again, standardised tests, SAT tests, to bring people in from a broader range of society, but also from right across the country. And his model for all of this is Thomas Jefferson. He's obsessed by Jefferson, and he's obsessed by Jefferson's vision of sifting the whole of society for the, this rare quality of genius. So with both Terman and Conant, you have an extraordinary combination of sort of democratic instinct with a high degree of elitism. And one of the things that gives this vision its bite is the Cold War. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. The growing competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And one of the things that really gives a push to meritocracy after the Second World War is Sputnik. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. 
one of the great scientific feats of the age. When they see Sputnik happening, they think, wait a minute, we, we're not the greatest country in the world, we're not the greatest technological power in the world, we've got this real uh, rival there in the form of Russia, they're probably overestimating that, but they, they thought it at the time. So what we must do is make sure that we're not wasting this invaluable talent of scientific genius. So that gives meritocracy a big push in the late 1950s and 1960s. So, John, Adrian was talking there about the need to discover, uncover talent in America as one of national importance in this great competition with the Soviet Union. And the instrument for discovering talent, IQ testing, is sort of formalized into SAT testing, which becomes you know, the great sort of meritocratic hurdle that uh, American high school students have to jump over. Yeah, IQ testing was first developed in the early 90s in, in France by a psychologist named Alfred Binet, whose name is still on the Stanford Binet scale. And it was first used widely in the American army to determine aptitude during the First World War. And I think since then, it's come to assume a really outsized importance. In, in recent years, we've seen a lot of controversy around the idea of race and IQ that people like Charles Murray have exploited to political ends. And just to give a sense of what the, the state of play here is, there have been extremely high IQ rises all over the world in the past 50 or 60 years. People who are non-white today have a higher IQ performance than white people did 60 years ago. That suggests that it can't be a genetic difference because, of course, gene pools don't change so quickly over a short period of time. The differences in IQ test scores within racial groups is far greater than the difference between them. But nonetheless, it's one of these things that has a really ugly eugenics tinge to it every so often. I think more broadly than that, the idea that IQ tests are indicative of something other than one's ability to take an IQ test or one's ability to have families prepare you for an IQ test really are not proven to my mind. So I think that today, in thinking about meritocracy and thinking about how to ensure equal opportunity and the continued viability of the American dream, the less attention we pay to IQ tests, the better. Tamara, when you were at graduate school studying education at Stanford, did you get into these debates about whether IQ you know, really measures something real and, and useful or just, as John was suggesting there, you know, reflects basically the opportunities that children are exposed to or, or benefit from? Of course, we definitely had many conversations about this. And most researchers believe that many factors, where you live, your nutrition, your state of mind, the access to resources, those all greatly impact your test scores. And that includes SATs and IQ scores. So one test that gets a lot of attention is the SAT, because it serves very much as a gatekeeper to the elite institutions. And while many push the SAT as an opportunity for everyone to show their worth, their value, their intelligence. What we see is that SATs actually reinforce inequality. SAT scores are highly correlated with income, race, and gender. So to give you a few facts, despite earning higher math grades in school, women perform worse than men on the math section of SAT by 18 points on average. 
We know that a student with an annual family income below $20,000 per year can expect to score 137 points lower on average on the reading section of the SAT than a student with a family income above $200,000 a year. And overall, we know that Black and Hispanic students perform worse than white students and that white students perform worse than Asian students. And the ACT, the other standardized test that is often used in the United States for admission to college, has similar concerns. So we can see here that unless you believe that people with a higher income or that people of a certain race or people of a certain gender are naturally smarter, there's clearly a problem with a lot of these tests. I guess that begs the question of whether it's possible to design a better test, Tamara, or whether it's just in the nature of tests that when you place so much emphasis on a particular test, people with the means to do so will just find a way to train their offspring for those tests. And so as a test designer, you're just constantly in the position of trying to tweak something to prevent your test from being gamed. I think it comes down to how well do we know ourselves and how well do we know what we actually need in society to succeed. So before we even go into how do we design tests to accurately reflect raw intelligence, we have to actually understand what is the intelligence and what are the skills that we actually want. I mean, there have been efforts in the past, haven't there, Tamara, to try and identify the skills that students will need in order to succeed both at college and in the workplace later. And we talked about this before, but I know for a while when you were teaching, there was a big fashion for the idea that if you could teach children resilience, that might be the the magic factor. But A, that's not particularly well supported by evidence. And B, even if it were, it's pretty tricky to do anyway, right? Yes. So when I was teaching in the charter school in Brooklyn, one of the things that a lot of schools were pushing was the idea of teaching grit. And the idea was that while you can't change a student's circumstances, whether or not they're poor, whether or not they have a stable family home, you can teach them the skills to overcome those barriers. And it was a really intoxicating idea, but we don't have a good understanding, first of all, of what skills are needed to overcome those barriers. But then taking a step back, you have to think about, do we want to place that emphasis, that burden on a student to overcome barriers, or do we want to do the work of actually taking away those barriers? And that's a bigger conversation. It is very interesting, though, because, I mean, if you look at Adrian's book, these high-stakes tests and IQ tests came along as a meritocratic device, right? The idea was that you'd discover smart kids no matter what their circumstances are. And now most of the research and most of the conversation we have around them is basically how they do the opposite, right? How, in fact, it's really hard for kids from poor families to do well in these tests. But that doesn't suggest that the tests themselves are wrong and should never have been used. They may have been better than what came before. It just suggests that meritocracy is itself a protein concept. And so what we're measuring and how we try to make sure that everyone has an equal shot at maximizing their talents, those have to change over time because we do have you know, the calcification of certain positions in society, educated parents having educated kids and passing on those advantages. So we just need to be aware of what policy can do to mitigate that calcification. All right, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to talk about what policies might work better than high stakes tests and about what the faltering of that 20th century vision of meritocracy means for American politics today. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The idea of meritocracy that was so popular for such a long time is now seen not as a solution, but as a problem. I asked Adrian why an idea that at one time or another had been championed by people of almost all political stripes is now under ferocious fire, both from the left and the right. The right-wing critique of meritocracy might be summed up in the simple phrase, filthy snobs. The cognitive elite are a bunch of uh, condescending bastards who look down on ordinary Americans who think that they're clever but aren't really that clever because they've been selected only from a very narrow pool of, of rich people uh, and who've made a thorough mess of, of, of running the world. Yet instead of apologising, they continue to condescend to ordinary working people. Some of the critiques from the right are strangely quite profound. Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, who is not a person I have a lot of time for, nevertheless has this notion, he talks about the meritocratic elite leeching on the rest of America. What, what they're doing is pulling talent out of the whole of society and putting it into narrow geographical areas and a narrow set of occupations, particularly finance. And that somehow is unbalancing the American economy. And I think what he's saying there, Carlson, strangely fits in with a lot of what people on the left are also saying, that meritocracy is class-based. It's not class-busting, as it claims to be. Uh, and it's also allocating an enormous amount of intellectual activity into a very narrow and not necessarily productive range of things, particularly finance and consulting. Just as a parenthesis, there's such an interesting phenomenon of America of that right-wing critique of meritocracy coming from you know Harvard-educated folks. I mean, there were lots of Harvard types in and around the, the Trump orbit. And, you know, Carlson was educated at a Swiss boarding school, I think, and then went to a fancy East Coast college. Yes. But that's by the by. How about the critique from the left? Yeah, the critique from the left focuses on the idea that meritocracy is not class busting, but class reinforcing, that it allocates privileges to the already privileged and gives them the illusion that they deserve their positions when in fact they've only got their positions because their parents happen to be rich. In other words, that they, they're born at third base and think that they've hit a triple. And that is a very, very powerful critique. And there's also um, a racial element to this critique that Black Lives Matter is particularly fierce on the subject of meritocracy because they say that it's something that white people use to justify their privileges and to do down black people. And there's an enormous degree of power in that uh, criticism for a lot of reasons. You've read a lot more critiques of meritocracy than, than I have while you've been researching this book. But the ones I've read, whilst they seem persuasive, where they seem to fall down is, well, what do you propose instead? And there the alternatives don't seem great. Well, there are two types of alternatives. One is to say, let's move to an entirely different system of allocating opportunities because meritocracy is so corrupt uh, or so inexact that we shouldn't be trying to use it. So what we're seeing in California, in San Francisco at the moment, is Lowell Public School, one of the great schools in the country, and the city has now ordered it to replace a system of selection by testing by a lottery. 
Now, that strikes me as an extremely deleterious way. What you're trying to do when you're allocating educational positions is you're trying to fit um, an educational ethos, a collection of good teachers with people who can profit from that. And I don't think randomness is a sensible way of allocating educational opportunities. A second way of doing things, and which I would associate with people like uh, Markowitz and Sandel, who've written very searching and interesting critiques of, of meritocracy, is that we need to loosen the system. But I think that that's exactly the wrong thing to do, because I think it's the very severity of the idea of meritocracy that gives it its bite and gives it its ability to be successful and socially transformative. There's a big move at the moment, for example, to replace SATs with essays, personal statements, uh, a good word from the teacher, all the rest of that. And of course, those things are always going to privilege people who know how to play the system better. What meritocracy involves always is a war against human nature. Our nature is to try and privilege our own children over other people's children. Our nature is also to do well by our friends. And in order to prevent that, we need to have something that can say no to that. The fact that meritocracy is sometimes unpopular, that people who like to pull strings don't like it, is actually part of its virtue. I love that idea that meritocracy puts us at war with our own nature. That seems very true. That's such a good observation. That's just brilliant. Tamara, let's talk about alternatives to high-stakes testing and ways in which meritocracy could be made to work better. As Adrian mentioned there, there's been a bit of a move in America to replace high-stakes admissions tests with lotteries, with you know essays, recommendations from teachers, etc. What, what do you make of those attempts to come up with something different? And are they likely to be better? When we're having a conversation about getting rid of these tests, it can be really tempting to turn to existing alternatives as the solution. But what we find is that the alternatives aren't much better. Some suggest that we should look at essays, extracurriculars, and other things. But research is starting to show that those alternatives are also biased. And as Adrian states, can be gamed or can be manipulated by wealthy parents. One study at Stanford University found that the content of students' essays was actually more highly correlated with income than SATs. More affluent students tended to talk about experiences, going abroad, for example, while lower income students tended to talk about hardships and facing and overcoming barriers. Another study found that elite evaluators of college applications tended to favor extracurriculars that were more elite, even though they had the similar level of skill. Uh, So for example, classical violin over the banjo, they preferred sailing over soccer, and they preferred foreign film club over the video game club. This puzzles me a bit because I would have thought, I'm generalizing wildly here, maybe I'm being naive, but most university administrators probably think of themselves as fairly progressive sort of liberal folks. And so the idea that they would consciously or subconsciously mark down an essay by a student that was about overcoming you know, obstacles and hurdles in their life and mark up an essay that was about you know, a trip somebody once took to Indonesia just seems, that seems weird to me. I mean, is that really what's going on, do you think? So I think there's two things happening here. One is that we tend to like people who are similar to ourselves. So a student who writes about their experience learning classical violin, and you can imagine that the evaluator who might be more progressive and might be hoping to have a more fair 
way of pursuing admissions might also read that essay and think, wow, I know how hard it is to learn that set of skills. So I appreciate that more than learning something that I have no concept of. We have these underlying biases that we aren't even aware of, but also the university might have an orchestra and might need somebody who plays that instrument. So there's a lot going on there, but those two dynamics, I think, really highlight the tension and the reason why you might have these more liberal, progressive admissions counselors falling into those traps. This is another thing where the U.S. university system is really different to the U.K. system and other countries that I've looked at, is the attention that people who make the decisions on who gets in and who doesn't pay to extracurricular activities. I can't stress enough how unusual that is. At the beginning of the 20th century, the sort of waspish elite were looking for a more capacious version of merit that essentially would keep getting their children into Ivy League colleges. It seems to me that junking that would be a good idea. I mean, I, just as a footnote to that, I, a couple of years ago, had a conversation with uh, a mum who was hoping that her son would get into uh, an elite US college, and he was a very good tennis player. And she came from a family of means and was able to hire a video team and cut a pretty professional-looking showreel of his tennis playing, which then went to all the colleges he was applying to. And you know, presumably, as you were saying, Tamara, you know, they needed to fill out their tennis team before possibly admitting him to study political science. But that is nuts. Yeah, that is insane. That does suggest for a narrow focus on academics... I will say I'm not as completely down on the idea of lottery admissions as Adrian is. I'm not sure that means you just throw open admission and, you know, say if you have a 14-year-old, you may get a letter in the mail saying he or she gets in. But I'm not sure there's anything wrong with saying, look, we're going to try an experiment. We're going to do admissions by lottery. You have to put your name into consideration just because so much of someone's potential at that age is dependent on their surroundings. I would bet you'd find a lot of them succeed. I agree with that. And in terms of college admissions, I found it to be a pretty compelling argument that you could have a lottery amongst the pool of students who qualified, whatever that qualification is. Yeah. And you can see that there, if you know, an elite wealthy parent feels that, you know, there's a certain bar that they have to meet. And then at that point, it's random. You would see probably much less of a system of gaming. Yeah, You wouldn't have that impressive tennis reel. Um, You wouldn't have the flood of application materials I saw when I was a student worker at the admissions office at New York University. You know, we weren't in Ivy League, but I guess we were kind of selective. Can you be indiscreet and tell us about some of the more egregious examples you saw, of course, anonymized? (laughs) Oh, wow. Let me think. So this was in 2004, 2008. So we were receiving a lot of like CDs, uh, magazines that were bound to look like the student's future presidential biography (laughs) Photo shoots, headshots. Um. So maybe we should give lotteries a try. I mean, Adrian writes in the book that Plato's ultimate solution for breaking this nexus between wealth and merit is state-sponsored orgies, uh, in which parents are pretty much randomly assigned children, and then the resulting (laughs) children are raised by the state. And this is the only way to do it if you want to be really hardcore about uh, making meritocracy flourish. I think that probably violates the Fourth Amendment prohibition on state-sponsored illegal searches and seizures, at least, if not also (laughs) bans on cruel and unusual punishment and compelled speech. I don't even know what to say about that concept. (laughs) 
Okay, while you gather your thoughts, uh, before I let you go, it's quiz time. Tamara, I hope you're warned about this. I have a quick but fiendishly difficult quiz for you. We've been talking about meritocracy as an ideal, but when the word was first coined in 1958 by the British sociologist Michael Young, he intended it as a warning. His book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, 1870 to 2033, described a dystopian future in which society is bound in a rigid system of ranks, selected mercilessly on intelligence. The Economist reviewed the book and compared Young, not terribly favourably, with the authors of two other satirical anti-utopias, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. Huxley and Orwell actually knew each other, but what was their relationship, and at which highly selective and elite English institution did they meet? (laughs) We've had to make the quizzes harder because Fazman has been getting so many points. <laughs> I think they probably met at Eton, but I don't know what their relationship was. I tried to make this so hard. You're, you're right, John. Age 20-something, Huxley managed to get a job as a French teacher at Eton College, famous private school in Britain. He was reportedly a nervous and incompetent teacher. He stayed for just a year and apparently had little authority over his students. But one of those students was a young Eric Arthur Blair, who had become better known as George Orwell. So a point for you, Fasman. Although freshly minted, the term meritocracy cropped up in our pages again a mere two weeks after that review in an article about new technical qualifications being established as an alternative to academic ones. The Economist held up another famous George, George Stevenson, a pioneering Victorian engineer, as an example of how this new sort of higher education might open doors for talented people from even the poorest backgrounds. What was he known as the father of? Think of Victorian innovations. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, this is this is past my limits. Victorian engineering is not going to special. We finally, first of we found a hole in your knowledge. George Stevenson, who's known as the father of the railways, neither of his parents could read or write. He learned to read aged 18 at night school, but he went on to build the first steam train to carry passengers on a public railway line in 1825. Many of the early American railroad builders flocked to Newcastle in the northeast of England to learn from him and to buy his trains to ship back to the States. His 1831 engine, the John Bull, is still on display in the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. The museum proudly claims it as the world's oldest working locomotive in existence, though it last hit the rails in 1981 for its 150th birthday. So now we've identified Fasman's weakness. You guys can expect future quizzes about Victorian engineering. (laughs) Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. See you both soon. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan and Nico Rofast. The series editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 